Hi, I'm retired NYPD detective author Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside, America's Largest Police Department, a podcast where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Whoever said there are 8 million stories in the naked city was never a New York City police officer. For, Amer- for America's largest city, 8 million stories is a drop in the bucket. To maintain law and order in a city that never sleeps, you'll need a highly trained police department. Creative criminals, backstabbing bosses, and a turnstile criminal justice system are just a few of the many obstacles NYPD members face on a daily basis. Fat bastards, faux titles, and a mysterious case of diarrhea. No two days were ever the same throughout my NYPD career. When I was five years old, the, the cops brought my grandfather home after breaking his leg in a snowstorm. I remember looking up at these two cops in their brilliant blue uniforms, and I'm saying to myself, who are these guys? What do they eat? Like, I just was so impressed with them. By, by a couple of years later, my mother used to take me to the movie theater, which is around the corner from a police station, and I was fascinated with the cops that were outside. I'd run up to the police cars. I'd look in the windows. I'd look at the equipment. I would treat the cops like rock stars. By age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. Then we'd go around the neighborhood conducting manhunts. By age 20, I went into the police academy where I had a wonderful 20-year career. This podcast is going to give you unique insight. You're going to hear from sergeants, detectives, from specialized units, homicide detectives, supervisors in the Internal Affairs Division, and the the, the rank-and-file members of the department who's got a story to share. The New York City Police Department is the largest in the country with over 40,000 members. So you know there's a lot of stories. After I graduated from the police academy, I went to field training in the South Bronx, where basically I I, I bounced around trying to figure things out, making a couple of arrests, but I, I really laid low. After I got a field training, I went to the 4-2 precinct in the South Bronx. If you've ever seen the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx, I I encourage you to watch it. It it depicts the time period that the South Bronx was literally just a burnt out place in a shell of itself. Paul Newman and Ed Asner are in it. So the 4-2 precinct at the time was a dumping ground. You either went there because you didn't have any family on the job like myself, or you you had screwed up in other places and they would dump you there as punishment. There's a lot of bitter people there. It was the rookies and the old timers. When you go to an NYPD precinct, especially as a, as a rookie cop where there's a lot of old timers in the precinct, no one's going to talk to you. It's almost like you've been dropped off for outer space and you're an alien and the old timers just kind of walk by you and they grunt. No one offers you a locker. Some of these old timers would have two, three lockers up there and you'd have like three, four rookies changing out of one locker. The place, the building itself was a hellhole with asbestos. It was just a dump. And the old timers wouldn't even want to ride with you. And if you got stuck working with an old timer, they would say, hey, kid, don't touch the radio when I'm driving. And the the reason the old timers were like that is they they wanted to see what kind of person you were. They wanted to make sure you weren't a big mouth or a know-it-all or you were going to be a problem. And the quickest way in law enforcement to screw up is to get a bad reputation because sometimes that'll take years to come off. In a lot of ways, the NYPD is like the mafia. It's all You're only as good as your last dollar in the mafia. You're only as good as your last collar in the NYPD. So I'm working in this burned out hellhole, and it's in the middle of the crack epidemic of the 80s.
And it's just, it wasn't even a place to eat there. There's crack zombies walking around. And I said, you know, I don't want to be like these middle-aged men that just can't go anywhere. I want out. So I heard that there was this unit called Bronx Task Force. It was a borough-wide unit. They were accepting applications. And even though I had less than two years on the job, I said, well, those who don't ask, don't get. I filled out an application. And within months, I'm working in the Bronx Task Force. But that was into the frying pan, into the fire, because what I didn't know was the Bronx Task Force had a lot of old timers that were padding, padding their pensions, making arrests and, and making a lot of overtime. The borough sent a lieutenant in there to clean house. So there was a lot of animosity between the old timers who rightfully so were getting replaced by the rookie cops and they treated us shitty. On top of that, when you're a rookie cop, or have no time on the job. You're basically at the mercy of the department and you do what you're told. And I was told you're going to be put in a place in a DUI unit, which I wanted no part of. But unfortunately, I had to work in a DUI unit. And there's no winning making DUI arrests because most of the time when you're dealing with a drunk, they're going to fight. They're going to cry and get upset. And, and some of these people have some serious health problems. They're either diabetic or alcohol poisoning. I mean, you're talking about some of these people just didn't make a mistake. They're Hall of Fame drunks. So a lot of times you're spending the day in the hospital. It's a very time consuming arrest because after you make the arrest, you bring them to the precinct, you get an arrest number. Then you've got to drive the body to a highway unit where they have uh, breathalyzers. And one of the cops in the highway unit that's trained on that equipment will you know, check the guy for his breast, breath alcohol content. Then you've got to bring them down to central booking. And it's just it's a time consuming arrest. There's no winning with it. Sometimes they're throwing up in the backseat of your radio car. And don't if, if you've got kids and you, in your local police department is having one of these things like meet a cop or see a police car, don't make your kids get in the backseat of a police car because perps piss in there. They throw up in there and worse. And I don't care how well you clean the backseat of a radio car. Trust me when I tell you it's the it's probably one of the, the, the foulest places in the world to sit down. Anyway, I'm miserable in the Bronx task force between the old timers hating the young guys for making arrests. I'm dealing with drunks. I says, Calgon, take me away. How the hell am I going to get out of here? I put in an application to work in the, the 50th precinct, which was a nice neighborhood in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. It's along the Hudson River. There's an affluent neighborhood there. You had a lot of famous people that had lived in Riverdale throughout the years. Willie Mays, uh, Nikki Leroy Barnes, I think uh, Carly Simon's family's from there. A lot of famous people that live up there. So I go to this precinct. It's really slow. But now I have this experience making arrests because I worked in the South Bronx. And lo and behold, now I'm making a ton of arrests. I got the attention of our commanding officer and he started placing me in different specialized units. I worked in the conditions unit, which that precinct had a lot of stolen cars, stolen cars leaving there. And my neighborhood where I grew up, Throg's Neck, was basically the car, the, the car thief capital of the world. We had more car thieves probably per capita in the Throgsneck section of the Bronx than anywhere else in America. So I knew what to look for. Broken steering columns, pop vent windows, punched door locks. I was making several stolen car arrests a week. Then I was placed in the precinct's anti-crime unit where you go after burglaries, robberies, stolen cars in progress. You're not undercover, but you're in an unmarked car. You're in plain clothes and you've got that extra second to sneak up on the bad guys. My partner and I are cleaning house, making multiple arrests. And you start hearing whispers because at this time, this is the early 90s, the Giuliani, the Giuliani administration had, had come in and he was beefing up the narcotics divisions in every borough. 
So back then, the narcotics division probably had between 30 and 50 detectives per borough. Under the Giuliani administration, they were putting a couple of hundred in. And everybody was saying, you're putting in for narcotics, right? You're putting in for narcotics, right? They said, yeah, I, I guess I should. I put in for narcotics. And all my friends that I knew in the Bronx got shipped to Bronx narcotics. I didn't know anybody. I get shipped to Manhattan North narcotics in Spanish Harlem, where I don't know a soul. So the building I'm working with was a hellhole. It was in an armory. They told us, don't drink the water because there was lead in the water and there was asbestos. On top of that, the men's room, the urinals and the toilets flushed hot water. I've never seen anything like it before in my life. And the urinals had these piss flies that when you would flush the urinal, that were the size of bats that would buzz your head. So the building itself was just a dump. And in narcotics, they were burning us out because we were doing buy and bust operations several times a week. And I'll get into what a buy and bust operation is. So say for argument's sake, each team's got about 10 detectives and cops in it. Your sergeant's going to come up to you and your partner one day and go, hey, Ferrari Smith, you're getting on today. Well, getting on means you're going to be taking the arrest. So the sergeant's going to give you a $100 bill. You're going to run down to a deli or a supermarket. You're going to break that bill into smaller denominations. Then you're going to take the, the, the $100 and you're going to photocopy all the notes. And you're doing this because it's called pre-recorded buy money. So this way, once you're undercover buys drugs and you swoop, swoop in to arrest the drug dealer, in addition to him, you know, his, uh, his uh, confirmatory ID, if he's got the buy money in his pocket, it just makes it that much more of a stronger case. Then you're going to give the $100 out to a couple of undercovers. You and the sergeant and your partner that's taking the arrest are going to go in a vehicle with the sergeant. And you're going to have what's called a Kell receiver. That's going to pick up a hidden microphone that's on the undercovers. And you're going to go out with several vehicles. And in narcotics, we used to call it sets. So locations that are dealing drugs, we call it a set, like a movie set. And each set in, in, in New York sells different things. So you have a tack plan that tells what each set sells. You don't want to send your undercover into a drug spot to buy heroin. And he's asking for angel dust because that's the fastest way to get hit in the head with a baseball bat. So once you set up along the set a couple of blocks away, the undercovers step out of the vehicle. You're going to have the primary undercover who's got the buy money. He's got, his partner is going to follow him and he's called a ghost. A ghost stays behind the primary undercover and he's going to watch him. He's going to make sure nobody messes with him and he's going to make sure he makes the buy. He's going to step off with no one bothering him. And then he's going to get back to the vehicle safe. Once the undercover steps off and is safe, he's going to get on his radio with a Kel and he's going to say positive buy. Two male Hispanics, one all dressed in red, one dressed in green. They're on the southwest corner of 110 and Lex. The drugs are in a brown paper bag, and he's hiding that underneath the tire of a blue Buick. Sergeant's going to say to the other units out there, okay, this is the description, move in. Now, at the time, Spanish Harlem, some of these street corners, you had 50, 60 people involved in the drug trade. You had the junkies and kids that were pitchers. They're selling, they're the hand-to-hands, right? They're the ones selling drugs. Then you've got lookouts. Sometimes you have a couple of enforcers, guys with guns to make sure that no one tries to rip off the drug spot. You've got managers that collect the money after the dealers are done. And then they go into a building and they come out with new drugs, more drugs. It's called re-up. So there's a lot of moving parts in a drug set in New York City. We would roll up to the corner looking for the two guys in red and green. And lo and behold, there's two guys dressed in black selling. So we grabbed them in addition to looking for the guy in the red and green. And it was like the Wild West. I mean, there was just people throwing stuff in the air and running around. You grab two or three bodies, right? 
You'd have the undercover drive by in his vehicle with the, with the tinted windows, and he would look and say, yeah, that's them, or no, that's not them. Once you were sure you got the right people, you'd call for the P-Van. A P-Van was a panel truck that we would rent from you know, one of the rent-a-car companies, had no windows. That would pull up with two detectives. You would take the two or three people you arrested handcuffed. You'd put them in the P-Van, and then you'd go to the next set and the next set, rinse and repeat. Then once you had 10, 15 bodies, you'd go to the local precinct. And then the mass processing began. And I always had a cold in narcotics because the people you're arresting for the most part, they're not drug kingpins. These are junkies and heroin addicts that they're selling to keep their habit going. So for every 10 decks of heroin they sell, they get to keep. Or kids, every 10 vials of crack they sell, they get to keep $10. And a lot of these people aren't in the greatest of health because they live outside. So you had to be so careful searching them because you were paranoid about getting hepatitis C or AIDS because you didn't want to get stuck with a needle. So you'd always say, listen, do me a favor. Do you, do you have a spike? You got a needle on you? Tell me now, I'll get rid of it. On top of that, these people were so dirty and musty that you, would, you always had a cold. I would just be getting over one cold and someone would cough on me, I'd get another cold. From there, you would debrief these people hoping to get a search warrant that would get into an apartment. That was the, the goal to either be introduced to someone that could sell you more drugs or get into an apartment, a stash apartment, and get a couple of kilos, a couple of ounces or whatever. In the narcotics division, we used to do a fun thing and that was called controlled deliveries. So occasionally the postal inspector dog would hit on a package. So they'd, op- they'd get a search warrant, they'd open up the package, there's two kilos, there's four ounces, whatever. They, steal- they would seal the package back up, they'd call the narcotics division. We would take control of that package and then we would borrow a mail truck and a postman's uniform, and it's called a controlled delivery. So then what we would do is, and sometimes I got to do it, it was a lot of fun. You're in a mail truck, you pull up to this address, you get out, you go up to the apartment, and these people know this package is coming. They're ready to sign for it. You go up there, you bang on the door, someone opens the door, you hand them the package, they sign for it. And as you're walking down the stairs, you're wearing a Kel, you're saying, you know, it's a pot. It's, it's a go. There's two male whites in apartment 4B. As you're coming out of the apartment, here comes the field team with a battering ram. A couple of times I'm in a mailman's uniform holding the door open for my field team. They're coming up the stairs to knock the door off the hinges to lock these two guys up. And as fun as narcotics seemed, you were always doing buy and bust search warrants. And there's mountains and mountains of paper that goes with a narcotics arrest. There was never a break. There was never just a day where you could just take it easy and just catch up on paperwork. It was literally just a couple hours paperwork and boom, it was like a pickup game of football. Like, well, my team isn't here today, so we're gonna put you on this team to do a buy and bust operation. And a lot of things went wrong in the narcotics division. I remember one time, another team threw a, a percussion grenade into an apart- the wrong apartment, and gave somebody a heart attack. So you had to be really careful in the narcotics division I was getting burned out and I said, you know what? This isn't for me. And I took the unusual step and I went backwards. I went back to patrol and everybody thought I was crazy because everybody's saying to me, Jesus, you had four months to go. You could have been a detective. And I said, I realized that and it would have been a bump in pay. And every cop wants that gold shield. But at the end of the day, I was miserable. I figured, you know what? I'm going to do the next 16, 17 years of my career back on patrol. I go back to the 50th precinct having a good time, not, you know, just making my arrest, keeping my head down. And my old sergeant comes to me and he says, listen, I'm going to Bronx task force to run their auto loss in a unit. You're a car guy. I want you to come with me. And I said, oh no, I went to Bronx task force once before I absolutely hated it. And he says, listen, trust me. 
It's all new people there. It's a whole new administration. I'm going to be running the auto loss in a unit. I want you to come. Reluctantly, I put in the transfer and I went and it was the best move I ever made. I worked with a great supervisor. I, then I got to work with a childhood friend and we were cleaning house. We were, we were locking up five, 10 car thieves a, a month, having the time of my life. But like everything else, all good things must come to an end. My sergeant was going to get promoted to lieutenant. My partner was going to go work for the State Department and I was going to be left behind. So what I did was I put an application for the NYPD's auto crime division, which is like the major leagues. And luckily for me, my old sergeant in the narcotics division is now working in the auto crime division. He liked me. He put in a good word. I, you know, my, I had a crystal clear background check and I had all these stolen car arrests. I got to work in the auto crime division for 10 years and it, it was the most fun I ever had in my life. I worked on chop shops, stolen vehicles, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country. In other podcasts, you're going to hear stories about I worked on a case where we had Chinese nationals in Brooklyn that were shipping 25 to 30 stolen Audi A6s out of the country a month. And then once we go up on the wiretaps, we realize that our car thieves are in the murder for hire business. You can't make this stuff up. And I had a great time in the auto crime division. I worked on cases where I had a, a diplomat that was driving a stolen vehicle in Manhattan. I wanted to just steal the car back from him. And I wound up having to go through the State Department. That's another story for another day. And I, I just had a wonderful career. But after 10 years in the auto crime division, 20 years with the NYPD, it was time to do something else. I put in my paperwork. I retired. I moved down to sunny Florida. I'm bored out of my mind. And I made a mistake. I went and I became a cop for a local police department down here in Florida. Great department, but it was like being on a bad episode of Reno 911. I went from investigating the mafia and organized crime cases to disputes, DUIs again, all sorts of nonsense. In, in Florida, they want you to learn how to wrestle alligators. And I couldn't believe this, but it's true. I, had, I spent a half a day with some guy teaching me like how to sneak up behind a gator and, and tape its mouth with duct tape. I'm like, can't we just shoot these things? And he said, nope, you got to call animal control. And if animal control is not around, you're going to wrestle a gator. Well, P.S., I didn't wrestle a gator. After about eight months of this, I said, you know what? I'm done. Bored out of my mind again. And friends and family said, you know, you got all these stories about the NYPD. You should start writing them down and write a book about it. And I said, who the hell wants to listen to me? But then I started seeing other NYPD members are doing it. Why shouldn't I? And here we are seven years later. I've written six books, four of which are behind the scenes look at the New York City Police Department with stories that no one's ever heard of and, and unbelievable things. I've recovered Mike Tyson's stolen motorcycle. Uh, it, it's, it's just endless. So. All my books are available on paperback. If you go to the Amazon book section and you type in my name, Vic, Ferrari like the car, all my books are going to come up and I'll read you the titles. The first NYPD book, which coincidentally is the name of this podcast, is NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. And that's behind the scenes look at how a station house works, emotionally disturbed people that hang around the precinct that actually become mascots. Practical jokes. One cop dumped another cop's Rogaine and filled it with wood stain and the guy gave him his head a shellac finish and the guy went nuts. My next book was the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. That book's got a story about this wild detective that everybody used to call El Diablo. 
He got liquored up one day. He stole a horse and carriage ride over by Central Park and went through Central Park and couldn't control the horse and carriage. My next book was called Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. That's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles, a car thief's mindset, what happens to your vehicle after it gets stolen, insurance fraud. And there's an unbelievable story there about two nuns that approached my partner and I in the street who had stolen Mother Superior's car from a, um, a Westchester convent. And they went on a wild shopping spree and they parked their car in like some pizzeria parking lot and they didn't eat there. So the guy called a towing company. And I got these two young nuns dressed up in habits. I thought it was a, a sorority prank. And I had to go lend a nun a hundred bucks to get her car back. And there's so much more to that story. Then I wrote NYPD Law and Disorder. And that's got a lot of embarrassing things that happened to me along my way in the NYPD, including the time I had to use a public restroom in a shopping center. I go into the men's room. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook. I drop my pants to the ground. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And a bunch of teenagers come bursting into the men's room. One of the kids jumps up on the toilet in the next stall, reaches over and grabs my gun belt. And now I'm in a hockey fight to get my gun belt back. So it's things that you would never imagine. Like I said, there's 8 million stories in the naked city that, that people won't believe that has happened. My podcast is going to be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everything. So there's going to be a lot of ways to get it. And again, I encourage you to check out my books. And on, as far as social media is concerned, I have a Facebook page. Just type in my name, Vic Ferrari. It's got a 25-year-old photo of me in my NYPD uniform. And uh, if you've got comments, questions, you want to be a guest on the show, you want to, you know, whatever, you can reach out to me at Vic Ferrari on Twitter and Instagram. What I'm going to try to do is drop a podcast a week. It's going to be a little difficult, but I'm going to be able to pull it off because I've got so many good friends and family that worked for the NYPD that are going to come on and tell their story. You're going to hear about gun battles. You're going to hear about the politicking. You're going to hear about, there's a chapter in one of my books called Rubbing Elbows, where I got to meet so many famous people. Brad Garrett, Columbo, Peter Falk. That's a funny story. I'm working the St. Patrick's Day parade in uniform, and I'm looking across Fifth Avenue across the parade route, and I see Peter Falk, Columbo, in a canary sweater. He's looking at us. When the light changes and they, they let people cross the parade route, he sees us and he tries to get away from me. And I got him in an arm bar and I walked him over to a wooden barrier or a car, I forget. And he's denying he's Columbo. But I mean, Peter Falk is just one of those guys you're not going to forget. Great guy. Another time my partner and I ambushed Kevin Bacon in the West Village. Wouldn't have, never. I was just watching Mystic River the night before. So there's tons of stories in there about organized crime groups, the mafia, and just what the rank and file members of the department have to deal with, uh, the sick, what it's like in the NYPD when you go sick, trying to get out on tax-free disability. There's a chapter in one of my books called Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards. And that's about, unfortunately, overweight cops and cops that are trying to gauge the system as far as trying to get a tax-free disability pension when there's nothing wrong with them, including a sergeant that was a Portuguese Elvis impersonator. And try to get, he was a, I have a weightlifter and try to get out on three quarters. And he was in better shape than half the people inside, inside the department. There are 8 million stories and I'm going to tell them all. I just hope you give this podcast a chance. And like I said, reach out to me at Vic Ferrari on Twitter and Instagram. 
And hopefully I'll see all you guys soon. Take care and God bless.